We continue in our study of the Gospel of John. We're in chapter 8. And by way of reminder, for the last several weeks, we've been in the same setting. We've been at the Feast of Tabernacles. Jesus has said that those who would believe in him would possess springs of living water that would flow forth from them. He's also declared that he is the light of the world, and those that believe in him would no longer walk in darkness. And as he made these statements, he fulfilled in himself, in those that heard him, his fulfillment, that he is the fulfillment of these ceremonies that were so prominent at the Feast of Tabernacle, the water-pouring ceremony and the, lamp, uh, the ceremony of lights, as these were taking place and were such an integral part of the Jewish celebration, Jesus pronounces that he is, in fact, the fulfillment of these two significant events at this feast. So the themes that we've looked at throughout this dialogue in the feast, at the Feast of Tabernacles continues to be developed in the passage that we looked at last week and continuing all the way through the end of chapter 8. So it's getting a little challenging to find new things to add to these messages because there are recurring themes that Jesus continues to drill into the, into the audience and what they're hearing so that they can say that they heard very clearly and they understood what Jesus claimed in himself, his ministry, uh, the likeness that he has with the Father. So the four major themes that are developed throughout this dialogue at the Feast of the Tabernacles is where Jesus comes from. He comes from the Father. Where he is going, he is going back to the Father who the Father is, and He is equal with the Father, and who He Himself is as the promised Messiah for the nation of Israel. Now, the opposite of each of these things is applied to the Jews in a negative way. Jesus is from above, but they are from below. They are from this world. He is not from this world. Where He goes, they cannot come. And God is His Father, and their Father is the devil. So this is a recurring theme that continues to get portrayed in this dialogue at the Feast of Tabernacles. So this morning we'll look at verses 21 through 30 of John chapter 8. You can read along with me. Then he said again to them, I go away and you will seek me and you will die in your sin. Where I am going, you cannot come. So the Jews were saying, surely he will not kill himself, will he, since he says where I am going, you cannot come. And he was saying to them, you are from below, I am from above. You are of this world, I am not of this world. Therefore, I said to you that you will die in your sins, for unless you believe that I am he, you will die in your sins. So they were saying to him, who are you? And Jesus said to them, what have I been saying to you from the beginning? I have many things to speak and to judge concerning you, but he who sent me is true. And the things which I heard from him, these I speak to the world. They did not realize that he had been speaking to them about the Father. So Jesus said, when you lift up the Son of Man, then you will know that I am he. And I do nothing on my own initiative, but I speak these things as the Father taught me. And he who sent me is with me. He has not left me alone, for I always do the things that are pleasing to him. And as he spoke these things, many came to believe in him. So as we continue through this, we're going to look at one major section 
with eight points of application as Jesus continues this dialogue with the Jewish leaders. The title of the message and the theme for this part of it is the need for the light. Now, most recently, Jesus has proclaimed that he is the light of the world. And as an extension of that statement, he goes on to explain a little bit more detail about the need for the light. The first point is that he is the only way. There is no other path to the Father except through Jesus the Son. He says in verse 21, he said, Then he said again to them, I go away and you will seek me and will die in your sin. Where I am going, you cannot come. In this one verse, we're going to see very, four very important truths about what Jesus has just said. Letter A, he is going away. Now, they are glad to hear that he's going to go away. They've been wanted, they wanted to be rid of him. From the very, very beginning, they would be excited that he is going to leave, but we understand what he means when he says he is going away. He's going to go to the cross, and he's going to fulfill the eternal plan of redemption. They don't understand that. They're thinking that he's going to go away and just be away from them, and they would be very happy if that is, in fact, what happens. The second truth that Jesus says is that they will seek the Messiah, I will go away and you will seek me. Now, to be sure, they're not going to go on a search party for Jesus if he disappears. They're not going to send out a delegate of of armed guards to go find him and see what's going on. If he leaves, they're going to be happy with that. But what he means by that is this. The Jewish nation is going to continue to seek for the Messiah. And because he has gone away, they are not going to find him. They will look and they will wait and they will hope for the Messiah, but he's not going to come. They have missed him. They're staring him right in the face. He's clearly proclaiming who he is, and they have completely missed it. To this day, the Jewish nation still looks for, longs for, hopelessly awaits the arrival of the Messiah. It is said that in some Orthodox Jewish homes, they actually set an extra place setting at the table in case the Messiah appears. But he's going to go away, and they are going to seek after him, and they are not going to find him. Since they have missed him, they are going to die in their sin. Jesus came to pay the penalty for sin, to take their punishment upon himself, to save them from their sin, but instead they have rejected him, and as a result, Jesus pronounces that they are going to die in their sin. Most people are going to die in their sin because they have rejected Jesus as the Savior. Several weeks ago, I was looking up some statistical information, and it was, it was mentioned that in the world's existence, there has probably been somewhere north of 125 billion people. 125 billion people have ever lived, and the vast majority of those people are going to die in their sin because they have missed the Messiah. They've missed the only provision for their salvation, and as a result, they are not going to join him. They will not be where Jesus is going. He's going back to the Father, to his rightful place in heaven, to sit at the right hand of the Father, and to rule the universe that he has created. Thinking about the countless billions of people who have thought that they have lived a good enough life to please God, or have adhered to a strict religious lifestyle 
in hopes of being acceptable to God. And yet, he will say to them on the day that they meet, depart from me, I never knew you. How tragic it is to have lived in Jesus' day, to have heard him teach, to have seen him pronounce miracle, perform miracles, and to reject him repeatedly, time after time after time. So Jesus states these four very important truths in this singular verse, and as a result of that, obviously there's still a lot of confusion within the Jewish leadership. Verse 22, so the Jews were saying, surely he will not kill himself, will he, since he says, where I am going, you cannot come. Now, if you remember earlier in his dialogue at the Feast of the Tabernacle, in chapter 7, verses 34 and 35, he said a very similar thing. He said that he was going to, away, going to go away and they would not be able to follow him. At that point, they contemplated that maybe he was going to go and have a ministry among the Greeks, a part of the diaspora, and he was just going to leave the region of Judea and just go and be away. Well, now they're actually contemplating that Jesus is going to commit suicide. Now, these four points are very, very important for a reason that isn't obvious to you and I, and that's this. The Jewish people absolutely abhorred suicide. It was believed that if you took your own life, you would go to the blackest part of Hades. The first century Jewish historian Josephus wrote, the souls of those whose hands have acted madly against themselves are received by the darkest place in Hades. So Jesus has been proclaiming that he is from above and he is going to go back to where he came from. They think he's going to kill himself. And if he were to kill himself, they would believe that he would split hell wide open and go to the blackest, darkest, most wicked place and this is a contrast to the truth that Jesus is proclaiming. So he is going to correct them here in number three, the correction that Jesus issues in verse 23. And he was saying to them, You are from below, I am from above. You are of this world, I am not of this world. In the Bible, the word world is used to indicate three different things. It's used three different ways. The first one is this, letter A, the world refers to people. We know this from John 3.16, For God so loved the world, that He gave His only begotten Son, that whosoever believes in Him shall not perish, but have eternal life. So that's the first way that we would understand the word world as it's used in the Bible. Secondly, letter B, it refers to ideologies. These are ideologies which consume the minds of the people. We see this illustrated in Romans 12.2. And do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind, so that you may prove what the will of God is, that which is good and acceptable and perfect. Now, the ideologies that exist in the world exist because of this third usage. It refers to an invisible spiritual system. It's a spiritual system that dominates the world, and it is purely a system of evil. We studied this months ago in Ephesians chapter 6, verse 12. For our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the powers, against the world forces of this darkness, against the spiritual forces of wickedness 
in the heavenly places. Now, if you remember, Satan is the little g God of this age. He is the prince of this world. He is not omnipotent like God is, but God has granted him limited but still incredibly powerful influence in this world. He is the one who has orchestrated a system of belief, a system of morality, a system of religion, a system of behavior, a system of materialism, and all of it is opposed to God. This is the system that dominates the ideologies in our world, and it is dominated by satanic influence. Now, we use the word world to refer to the world of politics, the world of business, the world of medicine, the world of sport. And what we mean by that is we live in this organ, excuse me, it is the, the environment or the sphere in which these things dominate. And the world that we live in is the organized system of satanic lies and deception raised up against the knowledge of God. It is Satan's system opposing the system of God. The system is hostile to God, it is hostile to Christ, and it is hostile to Christians. It's dominated by materialism. That is to say, we have a preoccupation by that with that which is temporary and is going to pass away. This system is dominated by humanism. It is the worship of man and the elevation of man's mind even to the place where he can redeem himself. It is dominated by a physical fulfillment and pleasure, by carnal ambition, by pride, by greed, by self-pleasure, and by self-desire. That's the world system that we live in. It's not new to us. It's been that way from the very beginning. This is the kind of system that the Jews of Jesus' day also lived in. It's a lot of philosophies and psychologies and religions and ideologies that make up unregenerate, ungodly, and unbiblical thinking. It is a world that will be destroyed. It's the world and all that is in it will eventually pass away. Jesus says, I am not from this world that you are from. You are from a human world. You are from a satanic world system. That's not the world I am from. I am from above. I am from the heavenlies. I am from God's system. His origin is in heaven. We, as well as the Jews of Jesus' day, are from this world. We are not from above. Earth is our origin. Jesus is the light that has come into this physical world and has exposed the evil world system. And we desperately, desperately need the light that He has come to shine upon us. So when Jesus says, I am not from this world, I am from above, this is what He's talking about. He's talking about this world system that is dominated by an ideology that opposes everything that God stands for. As a part of this correction, Jesus states as a fourth point that He is in fact the Messiah. Verse 24, Therefore I said to you that you will die in your sins, for unless you believe that I am He, you will die in your sins. Jesus is the only one that can save us from our sin. He is the only one that can transfer us out of the grasp of this evil world system and transfer us into His own system that is built in the heavenlies that has been established 
from eternity past and will eventually reign for all of eternity in the future. Now we'll see in verse 32 of this same chapter that Jesus declares that those who believe in Him will be set free. They will be set free from the power of sin. They will be set free from the bondage of this world system that we live in. He will give to us and to them the ability to escape what has been ensnaring mankind from the very beginning. We will all die in our sin unless, unless we believe in Him. Now, this is the third time that Jesus says in these three verses, unless you believe in Him, you will die in your sin. When he talked about going away in 7, 34, and 35, he just said, you're not going to be able to follow me. Here he says, unless you follow me, you will die in your sin. There's no mistaking about what Jesus is proclaiming, that he is, in fact, the Messiah. Now, in the original Greek, the personal pronoun he is not there. It's supplied by those that have translated the Bible. In the Greek, what it would actually say is, unless we believe that He is I am, we will die in our sin. You know what I am means, right? I am is the name of God in the Old Testament. It means Yahweh. It is a name so sacred that Jews would not even utter it. In fact, they wouldn't even write it down. In the, Greek, in the Hebrew text, you'll see a little checkmark looking slash that they would write instead of writing out the word that would spell Yahweh. Jesus declares that unless you believe that I am, you will die in your sin. To be a Christian... One must believe the full biblical revelation about Jesus. Now, I'm going to say some things, and if you take issue with this, I'd love to talk with you about this at the end of the message. But here are what I agree are essential beliefs in order to support the full biblical revelation about Jesus. That He is the eternal second person of the Trinity. That He entered time and space as God incarnate. That He was born of a virgin. That He lived a sinless life. That His death on the cross is the only sufficient substitutionary sacrifice for the sins of all who would ever believe in Him. That He rose from the dead and ascended to the Father in heaven. That He will one day return in glory. I would contend that if we don't believe in that as essential beliefs, we will die in our sin. The reason that I would say that is this, that if we don't believe in the full biblical revelation of who Jesus is, then we make Him less than who He is. And to do that would mean to deny some aspect of His being the I Am. You see, when you look at who Jesus is and how He has been presented to us in the biblical revelation, if He didn't exist in eternity past, then He isn't God. If he wasn't born of a virgin, then he inherited man's sinful nature. If he didn't live a sinless life, then he couldn't be a sacrifice that was perfect for the sin of mankind. If we don't believe that he is the only substitutionary sacrifice, then we're believing in something else to bring about our salvation. If we don't believe that he's not going to come back, then he isn't really the ruler of this universe. Well, Jesus makes it very, very clear who He is as the I Am. 
And he is now confronted by the Jewish leaders with nothing but unbelief. Verse 25a. So they were saying to him, Who are you? Now, some believe this question could be understood. Who are you to say that we will die in our sin? It could also be understood to question his usage of I am. Now, we'll find out later on at the end of chapter 8 that after he's continued this dialogue that they actually seek to stone him because of the blasphemy that they would accuse him of being guilty of. Either way, Jesus' warning to them has been ignored and they are unconvinced at the words of Jesus, the claims that he has made, the miracles that he has performed, the invitations he has extended, and the warnings that he has issued over and over and over. Jesus has, as clear as possibly could, declared who he is and they continue to reject him. They stand firm in their own religious system staring the Messiah right in the face and denying he is who he is and rejecting the claims that he has made about himself. So this question, who are you, we see Jesus' response here, and this is simply the repetition. Verse 25b, Jesus said to them, what have I been saying to you from the very beginning? Some would say that this could be translated, why do I even bother talking to you? It's not as correct in the Greek, but it is something that could be construed. It is a very complicated verse based upon the Greek words and the usages that are there. But what have I been saying to you from the very beginning? This is one of the few times in John's Gospel where Jesus directly answers a question from these religious leaders. Typically, he doesn't answer the question. He gets to the heart of the matter and exposes the sinful attitude or action that they are guilty of. So what Jesus has just said about his identity isn't the first time that he has said it. It's not the first time he has claimed to be from the Father. It's not the first time that he has used the I am statement about himself. It's a recurring theme in his teachings. His claim to be equal with the Father, to having been sent by the Father, to speak the words of the Father, and to do what the Father tells him to do. John has recorded this as early as John chapter 3. It's sprinkled throughout John chapter 5. It's consistently communicated all the way in John 7 and 8 and will continue to be a theme that John records all the way through his gospel. Verse 26, Jesus goes on in the repetition and says, I have many things to speak and to judge concerning you, but he who sent me is true. The things which I heard from him, these I speak to the world. This phrase here, I have many things to speak and to judge concerning you, indicates that Jesus' judgment of the religious leaders has only just begun. He has many, many harsh words that are being reserved for the religious leaders. We find a lot of these in Matthew and in Luke where he calls them men with whitewashed tombs and brood of vipers. And we'll see just a little bit here in John chapter 8 where he calls them children of the devil. But at this point, Jesus only speaks what the Father tells him to speak. The time has not yet come for judgment, but it will come. Verse 27, John adds a parenthetical statement here. They did not realize that he had been speaking to them about the Father. So we come to the seventh point here in our section today, and that is the proof of the claim that Jesus has made about himself to be the Messiah. Verse 28, so Jesus said, when you lift up the Son of Man, then you will know that I am he. And I do nothing on my own initiative, but I speak these things 
as the Father taught me. Well, you and I know that this is a clear allusion to the cross that awaits Jesus in just about six months. He used that word lift up earlier in his dialogue with Nicodemus in chapter 3. That word lift up is synonymous with exalt. So Jesus would say, when the Son of Man is exalted, he's indicating what it is that's going to bring about his exaltation and his deliverance. He spoke about this to Nicodemus when he referenced Moses holding up the bronze serpent in the wilderness when the camp was being bitten by poisonous snakes and they were dying from it. And if they were to look at the bronze serpent that was raised at the hand of Moses, they would be delivered from their death. Jesus made that application to himself and he uses the same wordage here. When the Son of Man is lifted up, when the Son of Man is exalted, then you will know that I am he. Jesus is glorified on the cross and he is glorified by the cross. This exaltation will complete God's eternal plan of redemption and this exaltation will be the means by which Jesus returns back to the Father into his true home. Again, the personal pronoun he is not used in the Greek and so we could read this, so when the Son of Man is lifted up, then you will know that I am doesn't mean that all are going to come to believe in him, but they are going to know who he is. All who come to know the Father do so by coming to know Jesus at the cross. That's what this means. He goes to the cross at the initiative of the Father, just as he speaks what the Father tells him to speak. So as Jesus thinks about this impending date that he has with the cross, and all of the shame that is associated with it, he's confident that he's walking in the will of the Father, doing what the Father has told him to do, having spoken all that the Father has told him to speak, and he is absolutely confident that the Father is with him even as he journeys to the cross. I believe that's what Jesus is referencing when he says here, then you will know that I am he and I do nothing on my own initiative. He goes to the cross at the Father's initiative and I speak these things that the Father has taught me. He goes on to say in verse 29, and he who sent me is with me. He has not left me alone for I always do the things that are pleasing to him. Jesus is saying that in your worldly mindset, You're going to see me on the cross as a sign of shame, something to be despised. But I know the Father is with me. I know I'm there because that's what the Father has sent me to do. I always do what is pleasing to the Father. It pleases the Father for the Son to go to the cross. What an incredible paradox to think about. It brings the Father's heart pleasure to send His Son to the cross. You see, it pleases the Father to secure redemption for those who place their faith in Him. It pleases the Father to show mercy and grace and forgiveness to His children. Jesus always does what pleases the Father. He knows this. And he knows that all that he will encounter, the Father will be with him. 
We see the result at this point of the dialogue, verse 30. As he spoke these things, many came to believe in him. Even with a partial understanding, in this environment, many are coming to faith in Christ. Now, we don't know if these are superficial followers. We don't know if they will be a part of the crowd that clamors for his crucifixion in just a few months. But at this point, they're coming to faith in Christ. To be sure, some of the Jews that have rejected Jesus throughout his ministry will recognize that they were terribly mistaken in their rejection of him. And we can be confident of that for this reason. At the day of Pentecost, some 3,000 Jews were saved that day. You see, when the Son of Man is exalted, when he is glorified, then you will know that I am. We come to know the Father through the cross. And those who seek the Father with sincerity of heart will encounter the cross. Apart from that, we will never know the Father. So Jesus is going to go away. And those who reject Him and don't believe in Him cannot come. Unless you believe in Him, you will die in your sin. What a great privilege it is to know that we know that we know that we are safe in the Father's hands for all of eternity. Would you pray with me? Father, how we thank you for doing for us what we could never do for ourselves. You should never get old to say that or to hear that. It's a reminder of your love and your graciousness towards us. Fathers, we think about Jesus's commitment to do your will the statement that he always does what is pleasing to you. And he says those words as he ponders the cross before him. Father, we give you thanks for the cross. We give you thanks for what it has done for us. We give you thanks for all who will encounter the living Lord at the cross and will be joined together with you and us for all of eternity. We thank you for what you've done, Father. We celebrate and rejoice and sing this song in praise of you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Let's stand and sing.